Welcome to episode number seven of Off the Shelf, a podcast that looks at what it means to be a true follower of Jesus in the context of Scripture and the message of William Branham. With me again is my co-host, Rod Bergen. Hello, Brian. How are you doing? Great. How are you? I am doing fantastic. Thank you very much. So in this edition of Off the Shelf, we're going to continue our conversation with Joe and Anna Baroni the authors of SearchingForVindication.com. And if you're not familiar with their website, they've done extensive research into the Municipal Bridge vision and many other aspects of the message. Joe and Anna responded to Believe the Science Call in an attempt to produce evidence in support of the message. And they found much more than they ever intended when they began. Welcome back, Joe and Anna. Thank you. Hey, it's great to be back. Thank you, Brian. Joe and Anna, we were talking last time about how many people claim that the documents you produced were false, your research wasn't real. I find these things disturbing when there's evidence and people won't even look at it. Anna, what about from your perspective? How do you respond to that? Well, I I don't even know that I could respond. I think I was taking so much time just to try to keep together. I mean, you know, everything was falling apart around me and you were doing everything you thought to be right, and for people to discredit that, it was it was disheartening, to say the least. We carried a tremendous burden, the, the time that we spent overcoming the fear to keep pushing forwards uh, in our effort, and to find in the end that those dearest to us absolutely rejected it. You know, we, we don't have one person from our family or our friends that stood with us. And so it, it was very disheartening. And I, I honestly, to this day, don't know the proper response, but just to keep putting one foot in front of the other and going on. And we, and we keep praying for our friends who we love dearly. But I agree with you. People say that we did this for a variety of reasons, but in retrospect, following the truth costs a person a lot. Now, for a long time, Joanna, you remained anonymous. Why did you do that? And why did you decide to finally reveal your identities and who had actually done all this research? Well, to be honest, initially it was fear. Uh, we have a lot of family and friends in the message, and we didn't want them to be embarrassed or hurt or somehow cause them to be shunned or, or associated with any negativity because of our stand and the things that we were saying. And we didn't want this to be about us. In many regards, it really didn't matter who we were, right? We were not big name people in the message that people would really recognize or anything like that where our identity would have made a difference, we felt, in our research. And we knew that, Rod, that you knew who we were because we had reached out and told you we were going to do this research and told you we were going to publish it. And I, frankly, I remember emailing you and asking you to keep our identity a secret and I really appreciate you doing that for so long. Uh, outside of a few family members, you were the only one who knew who we were for the longest time. Well, one thing I am good at is keeping secrets. <laughs> <laughs> but later on, really, that, that fear subsided. We didn't have that, that same fear that we did. And there were all these rumors and speculations swirling around that Searching for Vindication was just another Rod or Jeremy Bergen website, or perhaps it was John Collins doing this, right? Who we hope to have on in a future podcast. I, I hope you do too. So, and, and we couldn't have that. We couldn't have you guys taking credit for our work, right? Uh, and I, I, <laughs> Much as we would have liked to. <laughs> I joke, but that, 
<laughs> so, but the reality is that uh, ministers started publicly saying that our documents were fakes or altered. And we'd opened up in the interim period to a few more people privately. And we figured that sooner or later, our names would slip out somewhere or another. And at that point, we felt like we were in a position where we just needed to let people know who we were. So kind of, kind of a funny story here. You mentioned uh, mentioned John Collins, and we, we joked there about him a bit. But uh, after we'd been through our research, uh, the, the initial stuff, we still followed up on some additional topics at the Indiana State Library. And on one of those trips, I reached out to John Collins because I'd never met him and I thought I should. And of course, he had no idea that we were searching for vindication. And when we arrived at the restaurant where we'd agreed to meet in Louisville, he seemed kind of nervous at first, but later after we'd visited a while and, and he could see that we were sincere and those sorts of things, uh, he and his wife Jennifer actually invited us to come back to their home for a bit. And I asked him after we'd been there for a while if I could take a picture and he said, oh, all right, go ahead, you know. So I went out to the car and I brought out my camera bag and I set up the tripod that I'd used when we did all the pictures of uh, the Broadus uh, logs and with the lights and all that. And I spent all this time putting it together, hoping that he was going to recognize the thing, right? And I was almost finished before he actually realized what it was, right? And all of a sudden he had this revelation of, and he's like, hey, you're, oh, oh, oh my goodness, you're searching for vindication. And I think we, we, really, we really made a stay. That's, that's how we announced it to him. Uh, oh, it was that, fun. That's a good story. I'm curious about your decision to leave the message. And there's different trigger points for everybody I've talked to. It, it really fascinates me what brings someone to a conclusion that they can't stay in the message. What brought you to that conclusion that you just couldn't stay in the message? Well, I, I think it was a little bit different for each of us. And most people assume that it was the bridge vision that caused us to leave. But honestly, that, that wasn't it. For me, the real catalyst for leaving was when we found Hope's obituary in the Jeffersonville Evening News and the research that that article drove us to. So as you know, uh, the life story is, it's foundational to the message, yeah, right? Yeah. There is no message without the life story. Sure. Right. And when William Branham tells the story of Hope's death, he paints, paints this really clear picture of how he and Hope, they got married, and then he went on that trip to Mishawaka uh, up in uh, northern Indiana, and he ran into that group of holy rollers, right, with the Pentecostal yeah, yeah, experience. Exactly. And he was, he was so excited. He returned home. He got all these invitations to go speak at other places, but he disobeyed God because his mother-in-law was against him taking her daughter out amongst those holy roller people, right? And he listened to her, and in his words, we actually wrote a, an article with this title, you know, that, friends, is where my sorrow started. And all of us in the message believe that he rejected being a Pentecostal and that his punishment from God was to take hope in Sharon Rose. And it's a really touching story. I mean, I, I you know, cried many times listening to it. Of course, the problem is that it's like, completely a fabrication. Yeah, that's it's right. not what happened at all. Um, the first thing we noticed when we saw that obituary is that it says that she belonged to the Pentecostal tabernacle of which her husband is pastor. And the obituary also said that she had the illness for a long time. And we found out later on after we located her, de her death certificate that she'd been diagnosed with TB all the way back in January of 1936. So that started us digging, going down this path of uh, the origins of the tabernacle itself and Roy Davis's church and his influence on William Branham. And it's clear 
from that research that William Branham was associated with the Pentecostal movement at least as far back as 1933, a whole year before he ever married Hope. That's right. That's right. And so when he tells that story, he paints this picture of disobeying God and the terrible impact that had on his life and his potential ministry. And he used his deceased wife and his baby in a very dishonest way. And as a husband... As a father myself, I could not understand Rod. I couldn't excuse. I couldn't justify that in any way at all. I mean, it just absolutely disgusted me. And at that moment, I realized I was no longer in the message. That was the thing for me. When, when I came to that conclusion and when I looked at all that and I was, I was just to the point where I realized I'm no longer part of this. But uh, as I mentioned earlier, though, I think Anna's journey was just a little bit different than mine. So I'll let her tell uh, her story here. It was different for me. I felt at that time it was going to have a greater impact on me to leave the message because my family was still very devout message believers, and they still are to this day. And so I understood the impact that it was going to have And I wanted to be ready to give an answer should the time come. And I wanted them to know that I had exhausted every possible avenue and that I had studied it from every angle that I knew how because it was so very important. So I didn't just stop with the historical documents. I had to take all of it back to Scripture. And I read through the sermons and the seals and the church ages And of course, while looking for information on the bridge, that's when we found the articles for uh, Charles Branham's death, the divorce notices, Hope's obituary. And these little articles caused me to start studying the message for the very first time in chronological order. And I would just spend hours and hours reading and listening to quotes of different events in chronological order. And I'd try to line them up with the records that I had. And I realized I didn't have enough. So that's when I began to order uh, birth and death records. And um, at least those that were available to me. When you order records for ancestry purposes, uh, if you're not family, there are identity laws in place to prevent uh, you from getting those if they're too recent. And you talk about God providing. Had we started our research just a few years prior, we wouldn't have been able to access a lot of those documents. So the timing was just um, was just perfect. Um, so I had all of this information in my hands, and as I read, it just it painted a completely different picture of the life story than what I had knew known, and um, it called so many things that Brother Branham said into question. And somewhere in the middle of that research is in my eyes, that's when Brother Branham went from prophet of God to master storyteller. You know, um, a good example of this might be the story of when Hope lay dying in the hospital. There were several things that stayed consistent, but then there were certain elements that changed. Um, When he came into the room, he always said that he called her back. And she would tell him to uh, take the little tin of money that she had been saving or hiding and go buy that rifle that he wanted. She'd tell him not to stay single. And then she would turn to the nurse, who was either a good friend of theirs or a school chum of Hope's, 
and be certain to tell her to marry a good man like her Billy. The thing that changed in this particular instance was the nurse's name, and it wasn't remotely close. It went from Evelyn to Hilda, Juanita, and it changed every single time. So I took this very same approach to the doctrinal issues. I would just go into the message search, the table, and I would study a topic and just take one hit right after the other. And I found that the doctrines were, with time, they seemed to be greatly embellished. They changed. And um, sometimes things changed based on where he was speaking. And, you know, I know a lot of ministers discounted this as progressive revelation. And, but I, I just couldn't reconcile that. I would spend hours reading and, you know, Joe would come home from work and we'd go over them again and again and talk about the inconsistencies and we'd line them up and you know, we'd stay up late in the night talking. And in the end, uh, you know, it was just so, it was very difficult emotionally to process everything. And in the end, I felt William Branham had just lost his credentials, so to speak. He had absolutely zero credibility. You know, without a biblical basis, his doctrine became extra biblical. His prophecies were proven false. Not one could be said to be told before the fact, recorded, and come to pass. And, and really further looking back, I'm not certain any of his prophecies really qualified as such to begin with. I mean, I don't know what a bridge, a brown bear, or an egg-shaped car has to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, you know, William Branham pointed to one man, and that was himself. Yep, that's correct. Yep, that's right. The, the documents just completely blew the life story away as nothing more than a fabricated tall tale. And in the end, I, I simply felt like I was just left with empty hands. I had nothing more to hold on to from the message. I mean, that's a clear picture, what you went through. And I think it's similar for everybody who goes through it. You are left feeling very empty-handed. Sure. And this thing you held on to for so many years, it it is disturbing in, in a very, very deep way to understand that what you held on to wasn't right. And how do you hold on to something for, I mean, for myself, it was almost four decades. How do you, how do you hold on to that and realize it was wrong? Yeah, it takes a lot of, a lot of courage to admit that you're wrong. Oh, absolutely. And, and, absolutely. and I don't think people really uh, give credit for that, to be honest. I agree with you. So what, what other things did you find in the course of your research? Because you've told about finding a lot of things, and I'm interested in some of the other things you discovered. <laughs> well, there were a number of things that, that we did discover uh, in addition to, uh, to what we've talked about so far. But for, for example, we discovered that Six Second Smith, the boxer that William Branham talks about, yeah. uh, it was a real person who existed. And we found all sorts of boxing articles 
And it was it was a very big deal in that contemporary time period. It was uh, a very active thing in the Jeffersonville area. And we found records of a tremendous number of fights, as well as websites that have information on the Golden Gloves and boxing going back to well before uh, William Branham would have been a boxer. But we never saw a mention of William Branham in any of the papers or those records. So it's pretty amazing for someone with his supposed boxing record yeah, yeah. to uh, to have not shown up. Although we did find Six Second Smith, as I said, was a, a real thing there. Anna? Yeah, we also found um, we also found an article in the paper around the time of the 1937 flood where a floors a church's floor joist loosened from the sidewalls and the entire floor of the church, pews, pulpit, and all, rose to the top of the church. And then when the floodwaters receded, the, the carpet on the, the uh, pulpit wasn't even wet. That was pretty neat to find. And, you know, of course, it, it really brought that story that Brother Branham used to tell us about, you know, the flood and, and the pulpit rising and the Bible being on top unharmed. It, it was just, you didn't want to say at that time, we didn't at least, that, that he had borrowed the story, but unfortunately, the similarities and the similar reoccurrences of other stories that were so similar that we found that he may have borrowed were pretty much a repeat pattern. Yeah, I I found that to be the case as well. In this case, it was actually like a Presbyterian church where this happened. And, you know, it had nothing to do with William Branham. But when he tells the story, that happened at the Branham Tabernacle. Of course, the problem is that supposedly the Branham Tabernacle had a dirt floor during the flood. So it was a total impossibility. Wow. Yeah, it's really interesting, particularly given the fact that when you look at his doctrines, there's a lot of plagiarism as well. We're going to talk about that in a future podcast, but I don't think people realize how much stuff he borrowed from other people. Joe, do you guys have any research that isn't published on your site? Yes, we do. Some of it isn't complete enough to publish, so we set a very high bar for ourselves for the level of evidence we collect and present for anything that's published, and we don't want to take away from that. So there are some other topics that we've looked into and studied or just run across articles and things about, but we've not really flushed them out to enough depth where we'll, we feel comfortable really publishing them out there as full and complete research. So like like what, Joe? <laughs> I'm not really curious. <laughs> Well, I think one good example is a game warden topic. Um, You know, William Branham, of course, claimed to be a state game warden. I did hours upon hours of research on this topic and, you know... Come to find out in the end, there there is no way William Branham was ever a state game warden wow. in Indiana. Wow. Um, we, we learned that the game wardens are actually appointed... By the governor, they had to acquire a college degree, really? and even wow. back then, yeah, yeah it in and, and then in Indiana, even they had newspaper articles that we found in our research that actually had the game warden addressing certain issues or making a statement in town. I found uh, city directories and census records for that man, and it showed the number of years that he held this office, if you would. But what I could not locate was a full list of the state game wardens. And so I felt that without that, the research was incomplete. Yeah. But we, we are firmly, we're firmly convinced though, that there is, it's just not possible for him to have held that office. Right. So are you doing any other additional research or are you finished? Are you done? Well, never say never, right? <laughs> uh, there, there's certainly more we could have dug into, 
The reality is, though, we dedicated a significant amount of our lives to this over a year and a half to two years between the research itself and the... It's it's consuming. I know that's what happened to me. I was consumed by it. It is very consuming. And I'll tell you what, our research has... I just looked up the statistics today in preparation for this discussion. It's been read by tens of thousands of people in 168 countries now. Yeah, our website now, we are we are literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands. It's really amazing to look at a map and realize there's like four or five countries where this hasn't been read. Wow. And we've had many, many individuals reach out to us and let us know how impactful this work has been on their lives in a positive way. Yeah. And we'll always be thankful for that. But it, we really arrived at a place where it was time for us to move on. And so we have, I, we don't have any plans right now to, to do any additional research. Jill and Anna, given how uh, message ministers have addressed uh, some of these issues in recent years, uh, some might point to your testimony that we've talked about here today as a cautionary tale, where they would basically say, see, don't try to figure it out. If you start to reason with it, you know, the next thing you know, you'll be outside the blood, given over to reprobate mind, et cetera, et cetera. Now, as hard as it is for me to wrap my head around that mindset, I know it's being said because I've heard it said from message pulpit in the last few years with reference to message critics in general. So how would you respond to that type of criticism? That is all too familiar. Isn't it though? (laughs) The little say, you know, we're playing with fire, you know, and we're walking with hobnailed shoes where angels fear to trod. You know, sometimes I think people just, they don't think through what they're even saying beyond the, the criticism we've been prophesied against and really outright cursed to failure. I've been told by someone, well, I think it was Perry Green, who said I was going to commit suicide, oh. which the thought never even entered my mind. Wow. Yeah. I, I tell you what, when I hear that argument, uh, Brian and Rod, and we've heard it a lot, I think the reality is that that argument is Thinner than the broth made from a shadow of a chicken that starved to death. And that's a quote yes. from William Branham. Yeah. You can go look it up. If, if, if nothing else, uh, I've, I've got this great vernacular of these things that I can share. The, real, the reality is truth matters. And there's a very big difference between having faith in what you believe and continuing to believe a lie in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary. Those are two entirely different things, right? And so message ministers, they preach and quote messages like, the deep call us to the deep. You know, before there can be a call, there has to be an answer available first, right? This is a principle that's taught in the message that we all heard for many years. So God gave us the ability to reason, to study, to show ourselves approved. Where's the response to that? in the message, right? These are things that there can't be a question without the answer being there. They can't, why would God give you the ability to reason if he didn't want you to use it? So God's given you your, these abilities and the gifts, okay? Because he wants you to use them, not to check your common sense at the door, right? So William Branham himself would say things like, you know, the newspapers pack the story of it, or he point examples of people having things, right? Or he tell people to go see things for themselves. He told them to visit his hometown when he was traveling, you know, go to Jeffersonville, Indiana and talk to people. So basically, it, my point of view is that he instructed us to do what we did. Certainly. And there's no shame in that. And there's nothing wrong. And if your faith is true, if you're uh, if you believe a reality that is true, Absolutely. it will stand the test. Yeah. And biblically, there's there's Second Peter three fifteen, you know, and and I don't know how people get around that. First Peter three fifteen. Sorry to correct you, Brian. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Go right ahead. I want I want to be accurate, especially on this podcast. <laughs> 
goodness. Well, I, you know, on one hand, you know, you think about those things and, and it's a little sarcastic, but you know, I hate to disappoint those who are certain that we are just of the devil and, and doomed to failure, that God was going to somehow remove his hand from us and just let us go. But, you know, just to clarify for maybe those who are listening that they're, they're afraid to search or they're just starting to search out. I remember very well the fear I felt. And I can stand here today and testify that God never once left us. Amen. Amen. He stayed with us. And I'm, I'm blessed to say that he's taken care of us. And I, though it hurts, though there, there were, there was things that I feel were, were damages in my life. I'd do it again. As would I. It's really interesting what you said, Joe, about, you know, our ability to reason, which is something that came from God. I heard someone say a few days ago, which really I never really thought about before, but the human brain is the most complicated thing in the universe. And why would God give us that if we weren't to use it? And in fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, the King James Version, which is Old English, doesn't really state it this way, but I love the way the ESV and other more modern translations have this in our modern English. Paul said this, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. What's the most profound thing you've come to realize since you left the message? I think for me, it's how very little we actually knew about the Bible. Yeah. You know, the we gave lip service to it, right? But the ability and the duty, our duty to reason as human beings and use our God-given minds that we're talking about here, uh, to use logic, um, it never ceases to amaze me and change my perspective, the level of depth that exists out there around these topics that we just in the message scratched the surface of. And we just lived in this small little box and we were taught to you know, separate ourselves completely. And outside of that box, the world is just, you know, <laughs> the reality is it's filled with good people and they're kind and they're out there trying to do good things and make the world a better place. And, you know, to love people without judgment and, you know, just have people have great expectations about things that can be done and, and where we're headed. And we lived in this little corner yeah. um, where we were very uh, isolated to ourselves. Right. And that, that's really become a reality to me. Right. If I could share just a little bit on that. You know, one thing that I felt was really pressed upon us in the message was to believe you're the, you know, you're one of the few. And, you know, I can remember countless times hearing Brother Branham say, if there's only going to be one person that makes it into the rapture, you need to believe that you're that one. You needed to have that faith. And as a little girl, I I would sit and think about that and I would, you know, just kind of count on my hands, you know, the pastor and Brother Billy Paul and Brother Joseph, and I'd run out of fingers. And I, you know, actually developed a fear that I was going to miss the rapture. Yeah. And, you know, have nightmares and, and just great fear followed me. But, you know, after we came out and, and you know, throughout the course of, of studying and, and just reading my Bible, and I came to this realization, if you would, that if God were to take a, a bride, as we were taught, someone that we considered kind of the elite, the special ones, we were to have all this knowledge, kind of the cream of the crop, if you were to take them out and just leave the leftovers to fend for themselves, to die and seal their own testimony. It seemed so just off kilter to me. And yeah, yeah. I, I kind of felt like I was seeing children play musical chairs. 
you know, there just weren't yeah. enough chairs to go around. And I thought, you know, how wrong of me to think that I deserved one of those chairs. Where did I get off that I was so special somehow to where I deserved this place that someone else did not? And so I, I thought, you know, if, if Jesus Christ sacrificed his own self mm -hmm. for us, yes. you know, how could I not give that chair up to someone else? And, and my attitude at that point and, and my heart was that if surely I had a place in the bride of Christ and someone else didn't, I, I loved them enough that I would rather give them my place. And at the, the idea of my attitude or my mindset in that area changing so greatly, it really is a profound thought. With all my heart, and my desire is to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to you, Anna, to be a true follower of Jesus? Well, the, the one thing I always return back to is Matthew twenty two thirty seven, when Jesus told us that we just need to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind. He told us that that was the first and greatest commandment. Yeah. And I... I just always turn back to that. It's so simple yes. just to place love first. Yeah, I, I agree. And I would really add this perspective, too, that in the message, we were taught all this complexity around our beliefs. And the reality is that being a Christian, it's not complicated, yeah. but it's not easy either. So if you focus on those core elements and truly living them from the bottom of your heart, it's challenging and it's life altering in a way that the message never was. And Joe, that is so true. The Christian walk is not about rules and regulations. It's about living a life of love, loving everyone around us. And that's the most difficult thing that I've ever run into. And in fact, we can only do it through the power of the Holy Spirit working through us. Amen. As we draw this conversation to a close, I, I want to thank Joe and Anna, on behalf of our listeners, for taking the time to share your story with us. I, I am confident this will be a, a great help to many people. In fact, I, I feel like I've a little bit overwhelmed myself. I just want to go back and listen to this recording to just to, to just to hear your story again. It's just really inspiring, and uh, just I, I just can't say enough thank you to both of you. Well, it certainly has been an honor to be here with you guys and to have this discussion. So I sincerely hope that people understand that the purpose behind our research wasn't to draw any focus to ourselves, but to help people. And I know that in many cases we've done that. And I hope that this recording and our research will go on for many years and continue to bear fruit. Amen. For all of you listening out there, if you'd like to send us an email, there's a link on the offtheshelf.life website. You can email me directly at Brian, that's Brian with a Y, at offtheshelf.life, or you can reach Rod at Rod at offtheshelf.life. Also, the offtheshelf.life website contains a comment section after each podcast. If you'll click on the title of the podcast, it'll take you to a page for that specific episode, and the comment section is at the bottom of the page. Again, have a great week, everyone. Yeah.